I think it's appropriate to uh, let you know he... Tim asked for a little grace this morning. Let me explain to you what he and really the whole music team does. They put in a full work week like all of us do. And then they come in and take extra time to rehearse. And then Tim takes extra time to prepare the music and make sure we have the right songs that matches the message of what we're going to be speaking about this morning in in God's Word. And, And he does that not only this week in addition to his normal job, but they moved from where he has been living to a new home. And, and so all this was taking place in the midst of that uh, because Mark is on sabbatical and Tim has been gracious to step in and do a tremendous job of leading our worship. So we owe you a thanks of gratitude. So, Well, I'm pretty encouraged because I know that last week at least one person was listening to my sermon. And the reason I know that is because they were quick to apply it first thing Monday morning when I got a call. Uh, to ask a question about how something I said applied to what they see in Scripture elsewhere. And I want you to know that I appreciate that. Um, In all sincerity, it was an encouragement to me to have this conversation, to talk about things that are relevant to our lives, that uh, apply to God's Word, and just walk through that together. So I'm grateful. And since I'm assuming that this person is not the only one who had this question, (laughs) let me speak to it just briefly before we... Uh, go into our passage this morning. You may remember last week I made a comment about how Paul's instruction for women to keep silent in the church was not directed to all women in any circumstance for all time. But instead, in its context, Paul is speaking specifically to wives in relationship to their husbands. Wives who were contradicting, interrupting, or, or speaking in some way that was disrespectful to their husbands. And so Paul wants to remind them that God's design, his order of that relationship of, of spiritual leadership and, and humble submission as it applies in the home is equally relevant within the church. So instead of contributing to the already existing chaos in the Christian church, the marriage relationship by design should be an expression of the love and unity that you would expect to see throughout the church. And so, since that's the case, this person wanted to know if what I was suggesting was that women can serve in any position of authority within the church, like pastor or or elder, which is a really good question. And so let me be clear. (laughs) No, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, It's important to understand that within its context, I don't think that that's what Paul is specifically addressing. He's speaking to the order that exists within the church and that relationship between husbands and wives. And I do think there are passages that speak to the qualifications of of pastors and elders that do address that question very specifically, very explicitly. I just don't see Corinthians in the context of what we looked at as being one of those passages. Now, on one hand, I do value and and want us to appreciate the, the importance that the, the an influence that women have within the body of Christ. Because after all, you probably remember when we began our study, it was a woman named Chloe who gave the report to Paul that motivated him to write this letter in the first place. <laughs> That's important. But on the other hand, I don't want to overextend the role of influence to go outside of the boundary of God's clear instruction for the leadership and authority 
within the body of Christ, which is a topic for another sermon. (laughs) But for our sake this morning, I wanted to be clear with what Corinthians was speaking to in our passage last week. So with that in mind, let's shift gears because we're going to move from uh, Paul's discussion about the gifts of the Spirit to now his clarity on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm thrilled about what we're going to look at together this morning. You see, the Corinthians had, uh, over time, become enamored with the wrong things to the point that they were losing sight of what matters most. And, you know, I listen to that, and I even hear myself saying those words, and I think, well, we are not immune to that in our church today, are we? We can get so enamored with all the wrong things, we forget about what's most important. And so, yes, God has gifted and designed the church with order and purpose. And it is true that the church displays the manifold wisdom of God. But listen to me. The church is first and foremost the bride of Christ. And nothing we do can be disconnected from the trust and faith that we have in Him. In fact, everything that is true for us is because of Him. And so if we want to be clear on anything, we want to have utmost clarity on who Christ is and what He came to do and what difference that makes in our life today. And that's Paul's message in our passage this morning. This is going to be good. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you uh, with a heart's desire, sincerely, to not miss out on what's most important. We confess that like the Corinthians, it's easy for us to get distracted in our world today by side issues that are, in it, that are important, but not what's most important. So would you bring us back to home base? Help us understand this morning, by the time we leave and having looked at your word, that we would have a clear and committed understanding of what's most important in your eyes for our lives. Really, what all of Scripture is based upon. It is the cornerstone of our faith. So make that so clear and relevant for our lives this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. So if you would, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's pick up where we left off last. Paul writing to uh, the Corinthians. We're nearing the end of this letter. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, I think Paul saved the best for last here in the end of the letter. So let's look at this together. Chapter 15, verse 1. Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which you also stand. By which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul begins by establishing the foundation of the Corinthians' faith, a faith that he personally bore witness to, because you'll remember he spent an extended period of time, uh, several years with the Corinthians. In fact, he was the one that brought them this gospel message to begin with. And I want you to notice how he explains the ongoing impact of this truth in their lives. He begins by saying that he himself, Paul, preached this message of the gospel to the Corinthians. And he says that they received it in faith, that message. So they believed. 
And that belief was made evident when they took the truth of what they believed to be true and aligned their lives with that truth. In other words, they stood in the truth of their convictions. Their salvation was not just some decision in the past. It had an ongoing impact as as God's saving work in their life continued to to manifest itself as they walked in an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. And and Paul was there. He he knew that to be true. He understood that to be the, the very foundation of their faith. But he's been gone for a while, a few years. And during that time, it appears as if the Corinthians are beginning to to slip away from their understanding of that truth. They're majoring on the minors and that risk of really losing sight of what's most important. And so Paul writes to remind them about what that is. Look at what he says in verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to to Cephas, to Peter, then to the twelve. And after that, He appeared to more than 500 others at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, for I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was for I or for they, so we preach and so you believed you see there is a reliable consistency of that true confession of faith that centers on the understanding of who christ is and what he came to do and that understanding begins with the clarity that he died for our sins and and paul makes it clear that 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 was something that scripture spoke of it wasn't an event that that occurred that nobody expected in fact, it was anticipated. It goes all the way back to the Garden of, the, of Eden, really. When, when God covered Adam and Eve, remember, with what? Skins of an animal. And so in that sense, blood was shed to cover their sins. As you move on, you see it again in the Old Testament law, in that sacrificial system, where, again, blood was shed, the blood of animals, in order to cover sin now remember here though that this is a, a shadow of things yet to come a, a, a picture of what would ultimately be fulfilled in the messiah because as the writer of hebrew reminds us it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin so yes it was a covering but it was not able to remove sin in order to remove sin there was something very specific that had to happen according to scripture there had to be a sacrifice made by the promised Messiah. Now, we see this all throughout the Old Testament, but I think the, the clearest picture of what this was intended to, to be is found in Isaiah 53. It's a passage that speaks of the promise of this Messiah 
Now, you can turn there if you want to, but either way, I just want you to listen closely to these words inspired by God and spoken by the prophet Isaiah hundreds and hundreds of years before the Messiah came. Listen to what he says about this one who is promised and see if it doesn't remind you of something very familiar. Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, speaking of the Messiah, grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor any appearance that we should be attracted to him. In fact, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. The punishment that we deserved fell upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned our own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. And yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like sheep that are silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. He, his grave was assigned with the wicked, and yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, to putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. And he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the sinners. Does that sound familiar? What clarity we have in the scripture about how sin would ultimately and finally be dealt with. A sacrifice made by the Savior. The one who was pierced for our transgression who was crushed for our sins which was completely and ultimately fulfilled in the cross of Jesus Christ his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins and not just a covering for sin a complete and total cleansing of sin just as God had promised Jesus died for our sins but that death had to be validated through the burial 
and then the resurrection, which is Paul, why Paul goes on to say in verse 4 in our passage, he was buried and was raised on the third day. Now, most all of us have been to a funeral at some point in our life. And we know that, especially if it's someone that we lost, someone that was close to us, the time usually begins with the sharing of memories, right? Just things that you remember that, that, that uh, you want to hold on to. And as you share those memories, I don't know about you, but I find myself in those moments having trouble grasping the fact that they're actually gone. Because it sounds so real, so present, like they're still there. Until you go to the graveside and you see that body lowered into the ground. And that's when the reality hits home. Because the grave is the final confirmation of death. The scripture promises that the Messiah will be buried. But it goes on to say, as it does in, in Psalm 16, that God would not allow the Holy One to undergo decay. Even Isaiah promised that the one who would bear our sins would, would live to intercede on our behalf. And so death is not the final blow because the Messiah would come to conquer the grave. So Paul says that there are hundreds of people who would give evidence to this fact of having seen and, and witnessed with their own eyes the risen Lord who overcame the grave. And he lists them in chronological order, and I don't have any reason to believe him doing that other than the fact that he's trying to validate how true this is. He's following the series of events that took place as they occurred. And he begins with Peter. It's interesting that Jesus would choose Peter. What an act of grace. The one who denied him. He came to him first to tell him his faith was real. And his sins are forgiven. What an act of grace. And then he says that he appeared to James and to, to the disciples. And you remember that scene, right? They were in that room fearing for their life. Their Messiah was in the grave. And their lives were now at risk. Until Jesus appeared in their midst. And you remember what he told them? He said, peace be with you. And in my heart, in my mind... I believe in that moment their fear was gone because their Savior was alive. He had conquered the grave. And as if that wasn't enough, Paul goes on to explain that he appeared to as many as 500 others. And he makes the point to tell them that many of them are still alive, so you can go ask them if you want to because they were there to be an eyewitness and they can tell you everything they saw. And then in this roll call of eyewitnesses, Paul then turns to himself and his own encounter with the risen Jesus. Now, this was an encounter unlike everything else that preceding him because Paul was not a disciple of Christ. In fact, he was out to persecute those who were. And so his encounter was a lot different. He clearly opposed the idea of, of any resurrection until... Until he saw it for himself on the Damascus Road when the risen Christ stood before the unbelieving Saul. Which is why he says 
he was like one untimely born. Basically what he's doing is he's, he's comparing himself in that moment to a baby that has been stillborn, where there is no life outside of divine intervention. And that's how Paul saw himself, dead in sin, as he stood opposed to the gospel. But God, because of his great love, with which he loves us, made Paul alive in Christ. So, not only had Paul been a witness to the resurrection, he was really a participant, as God has raised him up to walk a new and different life. Which is why he goes on to say that despite his late start, when compared to everybody else, he was diligent to preach and teach the message of the gospel. And when he compares himself to, to the other apostles, he's, he's not trying to prove his superiority. Instead, what he's helping people understand is what he had to overcome that was different than anyone else. You see, he didn't have a reputation as a Christ follower. He was the one who persecuted those who were. And so he had to work that much harder than anyone else. Because if anyone did not deserve the grace of God, it was Paul the persecutor. But his life was an ongoing testimony of God's amazing grace. And so he was all the more diligent to tell his story of faith. See, this message of the gospel, promised in Scripture, fulfilled in Christ, and witnessed by so many people, is not just some historical fact. It is a life-changing truth and it's the foundation of faith not just for the corinthians but for every christian in every generation that follows and to change that in any way is to destroy all hope which is why paul continues in his letter look at verse 12 he says now if christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is also in vain. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. You see, the message of the gospel hinges on the resurrection. Take that away, and everything falls apart. Now, it's important to understand why some, as Paul says, in the Corinthian church had begun to slip away from what he said was a clear foundation of their faith when he was with them. I think there are a couple of influences that probably had a part to play. The, the first one was just that Hellenistic culture. In that culture, there was the predominant idea that the, the soul was immortal, but the, there was no bodily resurrection. You don't need to turn there, but let me remind you of a passage in, chap, in Acts uh, chapter 17, verse 32. And this is important because this is an encounter that Paul had in Athens. You'll remember when we began our study of Corinthians, we talked about Corinth and Athens kind of be sister cities. Paul went from Athens into Corinth. So what exists in one is predominant in the other as well. L listen to what it says in Acts chapter 17, uh, verse 32. 
says in Acts chapter 17, verse 32, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. The idea here is they're making fun of Paul for bringing up this ridiculous idea of a physical resurrection of the body. It made no sense in this culture. So it's possible that the Corinthian church kind of adopted this view for fear of being ridiculed by the culture around them. I think another possibility that might have contributed to this is the fact that they were so enamored with the, the spiritual gifts that maybe they felt like the, the resurrected life was for here and now, that it was happening, and that this was all there was. Or maybe just a combination of both, where that cultural worldview was kind of influenced or merged together with this manufactured religious experience. Whatever the case is, Paul goes on to explain the consequences of customizing their faith. And he's astonished that they would even take the liberty to do so given the ultimate clarity of which their faith was established on when he first spoke the gospel message to them. He says, he says, look, if what you say is true, then you poke a hole in the gospel. That's not exactly what he says, but that's the basic idea of what he's saying. It's kind of like a bucket. If you poke a hole in the bottom of it and try to fill it with water, it isn't going to hold water. It's going to all drain out. And in the same way, you take away the resurrection and all the truth drains out of the gospel. Because if we are not resurrected from the dead, then neither is Christ. Because there is an inseparable connection between him and those who follow him. Whatever happens for one happens for the other. So if Christ was not raised, then the gospel is a lie. It's empty. There's nothing there. Which makes messengers like Paul and the other apostles false witnesses. And it makes people like the Corinthians who received it and believed it fools. And this life in which we live, futile. It's kind of like that loose thread. I know you've had them in your shirt before. You kind of see that loose thread. You think, I need to get rid of that. You pull it, and the next thing you know, the whole seam falls apart, right? Well, that's what happens. When you remove the resurrection, everything falls apart. Look at what he says in verse 16. It says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Paul finishes his point by describing that inseparable connection between Jesus Christ and those who have trusted him in faith so that whatever is true for him must be equally true for us. And that's good news. You can write these passages down. You don't need to turn there. But the first one I want to bring your attention to is Romans chapter 8, verse 16. Just listen to what it says. You can write it in your bulletin there. Romans chapter 8, verse 16. It says this. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs or co-heirs, 
with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. A co-heir is trying to say that whatever belongs to one belongs equally to the other. And so when applied to the gospel, whatever is true for Christ is true for those who trust in Christ. I'm going to steal a passage from next week, a verse from next week. It's just one over. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20 says this. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. First fruits is this idea of a harvest. So they would come in and the first fruits were the, the first gathering, the best of that crop. And it was supposed to be a representative sample of what the rest of the harvest would look like when that was accomplished. So in the same way, Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. He's the first example of what the rest of that harvest of faith looks like for those who have trusted him in faith. You see, Jesus was the first to be resurrected and whatever is true for him is true for those who trust in him. But without the resurrection, none of this is true. And in the end, Paul tells us, sin wins. If Jesus didn't conquer death, then the penalty of death was never satisfied. Romans is clear, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And so if death wins, we lose because sin reigns. We remain dead in our sins, and our hope dies with us. And those who've gone before us have perished just the same. Which makes life futile, Paul says. We are to be ones most pitied if this sin-cursed world is all there is to live for. Disease, famine, sickness, wars, suffering, pain. If this is what our faith is all about, then we are to be pitied by all. What an empty, sad faith, if that's what this is all about. That why would we even desire to live the straight and narrow if it's a dead end? Does that make any sense? In fact, I tell you what does make sense is if you don't have faith, that's why you live like there's no tomorrow, right? That makes total sense. But if there's something that God has prepared, that is far greater than anything that we would ever experience this side of heaven, that changes everything. But without the resurrection, this life is a fraud. We suffer for no reason, and we put our faith in a dead man who is just like us. That is not what we believe. That is not what the gospel tells us. We live for something far greater than this world could ever offer. And what is true for Christ is equally true for those who trust in Him. Now, I told you last week that Romans 6 was one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. And one of the reasons is because it is one of those passages that best describes this connection. But instead of reading it to you in a familiar version, I'm going to read Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. Because I want to give you a fresh look at something that needs to be so deeply important to you as a follower of Christ. Listen to what it says. He says, could it be any clearer? Our old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ. A decisive end to that sin-miserable life. No longer at sin's every beck and call. What we believe is this. 
if we get included in Christ's sin-conquering death, we also get included in his sin or his life-saving resurrection. We know that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was a signal of the end of, of death as the end. Never again will death have the last word. When Jesus died, he took sin down with him. But alive, he brings God to us. From now on, think of it this way. Sin speaks a dead language that means nothing to you. God speaks your mother tongue and, and you hang on every word. You are dead to sin and alive to God because that's what Christ did. That's what we believe. That's the hope of the gospel. And it is alive and well and we must not lose sight of that truth. And so if that's true, we need to ask ourselves, is that what we believe? Is that what we're living for? Or do we have holes in our gospel? You see, that's the risk we take when we, like the Corinthians, begin to customize our faith and base our life on something other than sound biblical truth. We stray away from God's word because, well, we're busy. We don't have time. Or, or we may just be honest and say, I don't know that it's all that relevant. And then over time, those cultural influences, which, by the way, come at you every day, whether you ask for them or not, they begin to be the predominant view. They take precedent over biblical truth and its absence in our lives. They start to merge and all of a sudden reshape our beliefs to match the cultural worldview. We can call it Christianity, but that's not what it is. It's religious compromise. And ultimately, it's not a faith that leads to salvation. And that's the danger. And why Paul is so adamant to clarify what's most important. We have to be careful. Because we can fall into this trap when we focus on finding our hope and fulfillment this side of heaven. When we live like this is all there is to offer, we can compromise when we look and, and, and believe in our hearts. If we're honest with ourselves, that, that happiness and success is our ultimate goal. So then we can begin to, to justify some compromises, however small that way they may be, because, you know, God wants us to be happy. Yes, He does. Yes, He does. But the goodness of God is built within his perfect design. And we don't have to go outside of that to find fulfillment and contentment. We don't have to reinvent our faith. We don't have to redefine what is true. We can trust, ultimately, that God's highest good is built within his perfect design. And guess what? He got it right the first time. And we can stake our lives on it. We can stand in those convictions. Because what is true for him is equally true for us. So, as a true follower of Christ, we need to live this life with a clear understanding that the best is yet to come. And here's where I think this gives us great freedom in the world in which we live today. Here's what it does. 
It allows us to take the goodness of what God's built into his design and enjoy it to its fullest. I love my family. I believe God's goodness is built into the family. I love being Grant's baseball coach. I love watching Graham play basketball. I love my sweet wife. There is such goodness built in to what God created in the family. I love you. I love this body of believers. I love the way you love each other. God's goodness is built into his design. I love being out in nature. I love seeing the beauty of God's creation, his creative hand at work and on display. And you can't help but look at that and think, man, what an amazing God. I love all those things. And I want you to take just a second and think of what you love most. Things that are right and good and true. And here's what I want you to realize. It's like being in the kitchen when your mom's baking a cake. And that batter is ready to be put in the pan. And she gives you a little taste of it. But it's just a taste. Because the best is yet to come. And that's the way we look at things this side of heaven. It's good. But it doesn't even compare to what awaits us on the other side. And we need to realize that in this world... It's still sin-cursed, and so there's suffering, and there's pain. And we can think of some of the worst things we could imagine. I keep mentioning this, but I keep being deeply moved by these stories of faith of those who are being persecuted in the Middle East, who are uncompromising in their faith. And as they describe the stories of the things that they've endured, I can't help but ache for what they have gone through But without exception, every one of them have said, it doesn't matter what they do to me because I know that my Savior lives. And whatever happens here will pale in comparison to the glory that awaits me, and I will endure it for his sake. See, that's how we live this side of heaven when we believe that this world is not our home. We rejoice in the goodness of things that God has built into his design, and we endure the hard things knowing that they will pale in comparison to the glory that awaits us. Our hope is in God's unchanging truth, his faithful promises, and the life we have through our abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. Whatever is true for him is equally true for us. So here's just something that you might consider doing this week. Write down John chapter 17. John chapter 17. I would encourage you to read John chapter 17 in view of what we just talked about this morning. Because Jesus, in this final prayer, before he goes to the cross, and I want you to keep that in mind as you read these words, because this is really what's most important in his heart and mind. Before he goes to pay that price, for the forgiveness of our sins. And what he says, essentially, is what we've just talked about. And he describes that truth, that what is true for him is true for those who trust in him. And so read it and be reminded and be committed to living that out as if it really impacts our lives today, right here and now, as believers in Jesus Christ. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for that reminder. Thank you for your wisdom 
that recognizes that we need the reminder. That whether we live in the time of the Corinthians or the time in which we live today, we need to know that we're easily distracted by things that are important, but not ultimately important when it comes to the message of the gospel. We need to be reminded of how easy it is to be influenced by the world around us. And so that if we uh, minimize the importance of, of living within your truth, those influences that come with into us every day, whether we ask for them or not, they begin to shape the way we see faith and life and you. So bring us back to the center of what's most important. Give us a heart and a desire to be molded and shaped by your word more than by the world around us. Help us know what's most important about trusting in you, the one who died for our sins, who was buried and raised to new life. The first fruits of those who trust in him so that whatever is true for Jesus is true for those who trust in Jesus. Confirm that faith. Lead us to that faith. Strengthen us in that faith. Each and every day we live in the hope of eternity yet to come. It's in that promise that we pray through faith and trust in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Y'all have a great day.